I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Bill said this morning, uh, in some sense of the word for so many of us, truly the apex of the whole Bible, uh, extraordinary uh, chapter in this remarkable book. Romans chapter 8, tonight we'll begin with verse 12. In that, uh, in that magnificent last, or I'm sorry, actually it was the first sermon uh, in the missions conference, we heard about our mission to the world and how it begins not with us, but with God's own mission to the world. See, we have no, we have no mission apart from his mission. And his mission to the world, as we saw from that parade-level view of salvation from Ephesians 1 in that first sermon, God's mission to the world begins long before Paul and the other apostles evangelized the Roman world. And long before the church was transformed by the descent of God's own spirit at the Pentecostal feast in Jerusalem. It began long before wise men saw a star over Bethlehem and before John baptized the repentant in the wilderness. God's mission began before the prophets ever spoke of Israel's sin and of Israel's hope in the promised land. And well before the giving of God's law at Sinai and the great exodus out of Egypt. God's mission began ages before man ever fell into sin and thereby provoked the wrath of God and lost our real estate in paradise. Yes, God's mission began even before God made the world and all that is in it. God's mission began when God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So I want you to understand Everything that we have preached about before now in the letter to the Romans, our, our indictment in sin as humans, our hopelessness of any self-deliverance or self-rescue, the great grace of God appearing in Christ, the necessity of faith and the sufficiency of Christ in dealing with remaining sin, all of that, all of that great teaching from Romans was in service to the mission of God in Christ, that primal mission we heard about in that first sermon at the conference from Ephesians 1. And now we will hear about again tonight. So I want you to give your uh, full attention as though your souls depended on it, because actually they they do in some sense, depend on this text, this promise. Give your full attention to the reading 
of God's Word from Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let us pray. Father, you indeed predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this was always your mission, always your purpose, always your holy will. And you are accomplishing that mission every day in our midst as your word is declared And your people respond in faith. So may we now hear as those who luxuriate in the love of their Father with rapt wonder and full attention as you speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The mission of God is to have sons which, as we often explain, is an ancient biblical rubric that includes both men and women in the covenant. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is a family man, so to speak. A vast family. And indeed, that's why there is a world. That's why we were created That's why Christ came and we were redeemed from sin. And that is why I'm preaching to you this evening, God is a family man, so to speak. We say that of others who love to live in happy and well-ordered intimacy with persons to whom they are related. The Trinitarian God, that eternal fellowship of love and joy, would expand his family through regenerating grace poured out upon sinners by making his enemies into his sons and daughters in love. And that, that is the deep wisdom of God. That is the secret of all the ages. And that's the hope of all our human hearts. Everything that we've talked about from this pulpit, the sending of Christ as the propitiation for our sins, his his faithful work as prophet, priest, and king to his people, his atoning death on the cross, his mighty resurrection, his glorious ascension, all of it is in the service of this one end, that the circle of divine family love would expand 
And that God's glory in such a work of gracious adoption and family expansion would be magnified in heavenly life forever and ever, enriched as it will be by the fellowship of so many made in his own image and restored to his image by grace. Even even unto, as the book of Revelation says, to 144,000, 12 by 12, by a 1,000, a complete number, by a complete number, by a vast number. In other words, symbolically, innumerable elect saints in the family of God. But there is a personal question that's still hanging in the air, isn't it? Don't you want to know if you've been adopted into this family? Wouldn't that make all the difference in your life? Well, God not only wants to adopt favored sons into his family, but he wants men and women to know when they have been brought in to that family by saving grace. He wants you to have the full experiential benefit of knowing that you belong to him right now. And so... The Lord establishes in these verses tonight in a way that I think is unparalleled in all the scriptures. He establishes an accurate paternity test so you can know if you are born anew in the family of God, under the fatherhood of God, and can begin to live from now on as heirs of the glory of God. You know, we have utterly reliable paternity tests now with genetic testing. And it's changed a lot of people's lives very dramatically as they find out who their real biological father is. But the spiritual paternity test is by many dimensions greater. It appears in our passage tonight with three aspects or three prongs as I'm thinking of it. This is the triangulation of grace, the precise location and verification of our supernaturally originating sonship. So let's just study these, this awesome passage about one verse at a time. And in due season, we're going to cover all three aspects of God's paternity test for his people. First, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, Paul is glancing back over his shoulder here and referring to the point he's already proven in the Roman epistle, that our salvation did not come by our own effort, but by the grace of God. Now, we, I think we can all agree he's proven that point. We're not indebted to our own strength. We're not indebted to our own virtue, our own efforts, our own religious traditions and customs, and so forth. And so we should not live by those things going forward. They didn't bring us to the redemption dance. And so we don't need to dance by them. What should we live by as believers? 
Look at the next verse, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now this echoes what the Apostle said back in Romans chapter 6 about considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But here, the specific work of the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And I want you to notice the capital S in the English translation here for the word spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that since we were saved, since we were converted to Christ, only by the work of the Holy Spirit, not our efforts, therefore going forward as we seek to honor God, By living with battling against sin and loving God and loving others. Going forward, we're obligated in that task to live by that same spirit who first converted us as we navigate the rest of our Christian lives. We, in fact, dance with the one who brought us. We live by the spirit who saved us. That's what Paul means in this language of indebtedness here. Indeed, so many Christians take a harder path of not consistently living by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. But this is such a better way to live. Evangelist D.L. Moody described the first days after his conversion. Uh, He said, it was a new world. The next morning, the sun shone brighter and the birds sang sweeter. The old elms waved their branches with joy, and all nature was at peace. The Spirit brings life, and the Spirit brings peace. And so the Spirit isn't about the moment of conversion only, but is also about the whole of the Christian life. Indeed, This is the only way of living that actually leads to life and not to spiritual death. So I don't want you to misunderstand. Paul's not saying here in this verse that it's actually possible for a true Christian to live in any other way ultimately than by the Spirit. As Dr. James Montgomery Boyce commented on this verse, he said, Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian, Dominated by your sinful nature rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, then you will perish like a non-Christian because you are a non-Christian. But there is a sweet and hidden implication in that line of thinking. If living by the Spirit is an identification mark of a true believer, then by necessity comes verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now friends, this is the first prong of the paternity test. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I want you to notice that word all there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you are in a relation to God, mediated by His enabling spiritual presence, then you are a son of God. 
And this doesn't mean, by the way, that you're simply a created person, that you're a human being. It's a little confusing because the Bible will occasionally speak that way, at least in quoting the ancient Greek way of thinking, as Paul did at the Areopagus in, in Athens, Acts 17, where he says, you know, we're all God's offspring. But that's not how the people in covenant with God speak of this matter. That's not how Jesus spoke of the matter in John chapter 8. I don't have time to look at that tonight, but I urge you to read John chapter 8 this week. To be a son of God in covenant with God is to be an elect human being, chosen by God for himself and saved by God and his intervention, saved from our sin, saved from its judgment. It is not just to be born into the world, but born anew by the Spirit of God to transcend the world. So again, to be a son of God is to be a trophy of his grace to you, saved from sin and in a new, healed relationship with God. Because you see, and this is so important, in fact, if you don't get this, you don't get Romans. The whole point of being saved from sin and death and judgment was not just to save you from sin and death and judgment. That's not the end game. It never was. It never will be. Not with God. Not his perspective. The whole point of saving you from sin and death and judgment is to call you beloved in the Lord. To call you son. To call you daughter of God in relation to God, in a dynamic new way, which is what it means to be led by the Spirit. The great theologian John Murray said, the activity of the believer is the evidence, listen to this, the activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity, and the activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. That amazing quote. If you are trying to please God sincerely, it's because God's Spirit is leading you. Leading you to try to please Him. And it's a strong reason for believing you are in the eternal family of God. For all the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. So, Being led by God in this way is the first test of our sonship. The next verse contains the next test or next prong. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All Christians have received the Holy Spirit. I want you to again notice the capital S in the English translation of verse 15. All Christians have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom, that means by that spirit within us, we cry out, Abba, Father. So get this, God's own being, his own spirit and Christ the Son are indwelling us as sons. 
And by whom, by the work of that spirit within us crying out, we too cry out, Abba, Father. And they have forever addressed God in this way in all eternity. Long before a world was made. Abba, Father. You and I have been swept up in an eternal river of Trinitarian adoration and praise that has always existed. We've been caught up in that river by grace and we've become a willing part of it and we join in with it. Abba, Father, as Paul said to the Galatians in, in, in the fourth chapter and the sixth verse, he said, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So we can do no other now. Because we are inspired by the Holy Spirit. That English word literally means inspirited. Spirit has penetrated our persons. He dwells within us and he continues to behave towards God as he always has acted with intimate, endless adoration. Therefore, no Christian can think of God as merely being the great superpower above all powers, the prime mover, the uncreated one, or even just God, or even, dare I say it, just Jehovah, Yahweh. Christians, true Christians, now animated as we are by the indwelling Spirit of the Lord, must cry out to God as Christ did, saying, Abba, Father. That's how he taught us to pray, by the way, isn't it? Jesus said, pray like this, Our Father, who art in heaven. The language of God's fatherhood appears occasionally in the Old Testament, but no Jew before Jesus would have dared to have prayed this way before the Holy One of Israel. Certainly no pagan ever conceived of God in this way, but our Savior Jesus did uniquely in the history of the world. Father, even more astonishing, he called him Abba. Abba, the Aramaic word for Papa. Now this, this is utterly unprecedented in the history of mankind. It, 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 it so stood out in the memory of the disciples that years and years later, when the Gospels were being written in the Greek language, Jesus' use of the local idiomatic Aramaic word, Abba, was preserved. This is the word Jesus would have used in his own home in Nazareth. It is the most intimate word for Father that was available to him. Abba, Father. Because of Jesus, our relation to our Creator is now inescapably and wonderfully and permanently personal. It's spiritually, continually breathing in a dynamic of holy love and trusting intimacy that has existed before the great universe was formed. Now this has nothing to do 
with the fearful trembling of the slave before the master. If we are favored and free sons of the Father, we do not live with that kind of fear. This is what Frederick Douglass, the most important man of his generation in many ways, the most well-known American in the world in his day, Frederick Douglass emphasized in his teaching, the spirit of Christianity overthrows oppression. There was a reason that many, not all, but many slaveholders in the antebellum South did not want their slaves becoming Christians because it puts an air of dignity and freedom in a man and takes away a craven fear. Christianity undermined chattel slavery from the inside out, not from explicit outward prohibition in the scripture which would have resulted in nothing but bloody revolution throughout the world and certain destruction of the early church. But by the liberating spirit of the Father, the Father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift and by whom every family on earth is named, working in the hearts of his faithful people. Paul reminded Philemon, That his slave Onesimus was his brother in the Lord. And that was a most revolutionary idea indeed. And you see, it's all because of Christ. This, This relationship to the Father of lights, which every believer has. By both Christ's example in prayer and by his achievement on the cross, it is done. You see, Christ called God Father every single time he personally addressed him, except one. When he hung on the cross, he called him God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, beloved, this was not a breakdown in the Holy Trinity but a willing experience of God-abandonment in the human nature of Jesus. For in the hypostatic union of his two natures, he could be the beloved Son of God and the cursed servant of God in the same moment. And all this he did so that you and I would never, ever, under any circumstances, no matter how extreme they are, have to call on God and call him anything other than Father. The Divine Son, in and through His human nature, endured the existential experience of spiritual fatherlessness so that His people never would endure spiritual fatherlessness in all eternity. Praise God. When you're being led in the way that I'm describing uh, by the Spirit of God in relation to your Heavenly Father, it really colors all of life. When I was a small boy, we would occasionally drive from Columbia, South Carolina, over to Camden, South Carolina, where my dear grandmother lived and how she doted on us. It was about as good a thing as could happen to us to drive over to Camden 
except that for years, during the months between May and October, it was so often miserably hot in her little house in Camden. Uh, She didn't have central air. Nobody she knew had central air conditioning in the early 1960s. They had box fans, and they would situate them around the house and basically stir the humid air. But it wasn't pleasant. In fact, it was pretty miserable in that old house. And then my father bought her a window unit air conditioner, and it changed our lives. Uh, Really, she was a product of the Depression, so, you know, she would only use it occasionally for special occasions. When I came there, I considered my presence with her a special occasion, so (laughs) I uh, closed all the doors to the living room, turned it, you know, wide open, and just, just enjoyed this amazing cool air in August in South Carolina. And I remember just standing in that stream of cold air and thinking, isn't my father a good man? He's a good man. Look what he did. When you have a dynamic relation to God as your heavenly father, even if your earthly father was not a very good man, and and mine was far from perfect, I assure you, Still, if God is your heavenly Father, then you are a son of God through divine adoption, and all of life is to be colored by his good and generous fatherhood. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is essential Christianity, friends, how, how basic it is, and yet how essential it is. And how dare the Church of England now consider dropping references to God as Father in their liturgy and prayers. Would they cancel Jesus himself? If they cancel the fatherhood of God, they might as well. Now, Look at this incredible next verse, verse 16, if you will. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this verse is the third aspect of our spiritual paternity test. I want to review with you now. First of all, we are led by the Spirit of God each day. Secondly, we are enabled to call God our Father, even Abba Father. But then this third test, in some ways I think is the most amazing of all. I want to read it again to you. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And you know what this Bible text is not saying? It's not saying that by reading the Bible, we find out we're the children of God. This passage does not say that by observing our changed life, we can deduce that we are children of God. It does not claim that a faithful preacher reveals to us that we are children of God by grace. 
No. It says that the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. This is not God providentially using some secondary means to convince us of his paternity and our sonship. He often does that, of course, but not in this case. This is not a means of grace verse. This is a direct witness of his spirit to our spirits that it is so. And what we're saying is that God makes it known inwardly, spiritually, supernaturally, and infallibly. This is something on the order of the creation of the world out of nothing. Or the raising of Christ by God's sheer command with no instrumentalities used. God himself, in a way only he can and in a way only he knows about, whispers into the ears of our hearts. My son, my daughter, you belong to me now, forever. And so we do, and so we are. Now, we may not always hold that truth very tightly to us, as we should. But brothers and sisters, and I call you brothers and sisters for the same reason, of course, You know, and I know it is so by experience. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. He leaves nothing to chance. God has done it. And now our Father has made it known. Ah, but I know some are going to protest what I just said. Pastor, isn't that hopelessly subjective? Can't a person wrongly believe that they are led by God and even call him father with their lips but not really live with such a daily communion with him as father? Can't a person believe God has spoken to them when he hasn't? Aren't there reports all the time of mentally disturbed people believing God is telling them to do some crazy or criminal nonsense? Yes, but are you saying that's you? Are you really a fake? Are you a deluded fool? Or are you a chosen child of the Father, possessing God himself? That's what it means to be an heir of God through the Holy Spirit. See, those are the only options before you. If you, and I know all of you are, I believe, all of you are traveling through time with the church, confessing her faith. So you are either, this moment, what the old hymn calls a false son in her pale, within the church's pale, that is a spiritual fraud of the first order, or or you are an elect son of God by grace, daughter of the Lord by grace. 
and you will judge the angels in the kingdom of heaven. Here in Romans 8, you have a three-pronged test to determine which it is. As I have often told people, God is not a trickster and he wishes to be known. Besides, there is one last test, one final test to call out all the fakers and the fools. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let us pray. O Lord, in Christ we are heirs of so much, both in this life and in the life to come, when the mansions of your glory will be our playrooms. We thank you, we bless you for adopting us as your own children. We now know that we never need be lonely again. Never scared in the dark again. Never anxious for our future. Never seduced by the hateful idolatries of our time. Never seduced by sentimentality and romanticism. Never fretting over our self-esteem. For Holy Father, Lord of worlds, We belong to you now through Jesus Christ, the true Son, forever. Thank you, not only for making our adoption possible in the ministry of your Son, but for giving us the spirit of adoption through which we are enabled. Indeed, O Lord, we are compelled to cry out to you, saying, Abba, Father. And, O Lord, if anyone here this evening or listening online is in fact a spiritual fraud or has but delusions of sonship. We humbly pray that you would give them a spirit of repentance that they might indeed then have the spirit of adoption. And so we pray for this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the blessed Holy Spirit. Amen.